you, if you go all the way to the back and keep coming toward the front, you'll run into Hebrews pretty quickly. If you're using the book that's in the pew, you can turn simply to page 1002. It's the blue book in the chair or the pew. And before we read this uh, portion, I'd like to have you look at that sheet that was handed out. You'll see at the top of the page the writer's perspective as he's writing Hebrews 3 as it looks back to Psalm 95, which looks back to the wilderness issues, which culminated in, in Numbers 14 when they, the, the people of Israel that had grumbled and griped and grumbled and griped over and over and over again finally just refused to go into the promised land, just refused to obey God and believe his promise. So Psalm 95 has a meditation or a warning, don't be like those people in the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews takes this up in the first section we're going to read and, and applies that to his people in his day. And we'll, we'll do the same for us because it says today the Holy Spirit says. <laughs> so it's, it's brought right to us. So that's the little top part. Then you see the basic outline. It's very simple. There's the warning from Psalm 95, and then he applies the warning in verses 12 through 19. But I want you to notice the way 12 through 19 is structured because it begins and ends with the word unbelief. And that frames the whole section. It defines the section. It's about unbelief. It's about the hardening of the heart that leads to unbelief. And you see the center of it is that C, that, that uh, confidence. And if you go from C up to unbelief, you go through hardening, right? So a confident heart full of faith hardens to become a heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. And so the warning, do not be hardened. Do not be hardened. But have uh, nurture a, a heart full of faith. So that's why the title is uh, keeping a, a heart having a heart soft and uh, rich in faith. So let's read this with that outline in mind, maybe help you as we read to uh, realize a little bit more about the passage. So beginning with the, the quoting from Psalm 95, and then in verse 12, he'll begin to apply it. Therefore, having just said, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So, therefore, since we must hold fast our confidence, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
And notice how verses 6 and 8, where he says up there, hold fast confidence, do not harden your heart, is repeated in verses 14 and 15, uh, where he says, we hold our original confidence, do not harden your heart. So see, there's, there's the pattern. Hold your confidence, continue to believe, do not harden your heart. And then he goes into what is a, a, a rhetoric technique of the day of asking a question and answering it and asking and answering and asking and to drive home a point. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, come to us, Lord, in our weakness, in my weakness, in our helplessness, and Lord, uh, bring our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts uh, that we would see the Lord Jesus in new ways and follow him all the more because of his glory and beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 1901, this woman named Auguste was brought to an insane asylum in Frankfurt, Germany by her husband. She was described as delusional, disoriented, and forgetful so that she couldn't even carry out her household duties. The doctor's name was Alzheimer, and she was the first case. And this is where we get that name. Well, on autopsy, Alzheimer not only described or discovered the plaques and tangles in her brain, but he also discovered the presence of arteriosclerosis, that is the hardening of the arteries, plaque buildup in the arteries of her brain. So that further autopsies have shown that Alzheimer's patients tend to have significantly more plaque buildup and narrowing of the arteries within the brain. Not surprising then that the dietary centerpiece, as it's called, 2014 Dietary and Lifestyle Guidelines for the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease, published in the Journal of Neurobiology for Aging. There you go. <laughs> was this vegetables, legumes, fruits, and whole grains should replace meats and dairy products as primary staples of the diet to prevent Alzheimer's. Now I'm using that as an illustration, as we've already talked about from our structure. Keep a soft heart, rich in faith, nourished your heart, nourished with the rich supply of faith so that you don't begin to form those plaques and tangles of unbelief that fall away from the living God. We tend to think it's a brain problem, right? But it's an artery problem. It's a heart problem. And falling away from the living God is a belief problem. It's a faith problem. Are we being supplied richly with faith in our lives? And that's why uh, this is framed in that way. Unbelief, that's the problem. 
falling away and going astray, yes. But it's born in unbelief. So, we're going to talk about uh, a hard heart. First, the production of a hard heart. How do we get a hard heart? How does has a hard heart formed? And then, uh, secondly, the properties of a hard heart, or maybe the marks of a heart. What does it look like? So, how is it formed? And then, what does it look like? So, production, properties, and finally, the prevention of a hard heart. What are some very practical things that we do can do to nourish our hearts with faith and prevent them from this hardening? So first, the production of a hard heart is pretty straightforward in the passage. In verse 13, beware that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's where hardening comes. Not just sin, but it's deceitfulness. Sound like Jeff Foxworthy. Woo! <laughs> Isn't it interesting? By believing a lie about God, by believing a lie about God, we turn away from God because we've been deceived. We believe a lie. Sin and its deceitfulness hardens us. It deadens us horribly against the living God, the living God. And sin in this context means to refuse to obey and act upon his promise. Because that's what Israel didn't do. In light of the giants of the land, in light of the walled cities of the land, even though God had promised, I will give you success and I will hand you over this land, they would not believe the promise. But they looked to their circumstances that outweighed to them uh, the, the the promise of God. And this word deceitfulness is translated by one commentator as the delusive attractiveness of sin. Because it's always associated with like riches or pleasure. So it really has that nuance with it. Not just deceitfulness, but the delusional attractiveness of sin. And it's a present tense, so constantly be exhorting so that you don't be hardened. This constant, constantly be seeing to it and taking care. Uh, the way I view affliction and pain is that it's a train that comes into your city, your life, and Satan always jumps the train of affliction, always. He's always jumping into an empty box car. He's always riding into affliction to see what he can do. What havoc can he wreak? How can he turn this affliction and deceive you by it so that you begin to doubt the goodness of God? That's his point. To turn your heart to some delusional attractiveness of sin that looks better than just trusting this God who seems to constantly turn against you. So he turns you from believing in God's goodness. Affliction whispers to you. Or Satan in affliction, sin in affliction, whispers to you that God does not care. God is not looking. God is not watching you. He has, 
His back turned against you. He has forgotten you. You don't count. Other people are important to God, obviously, but you are not. Nothing turns out for you. Everything is against you. There's no point. There's no rhyme or reason in obeying God. And our heart can be deluded against the rich promise of God, even though you're right on the edge of the blessing, right? Even though affliction, if you could see the train for what it is and you started opening up the boxcars, you'd say, this thing is full of good things for me. This train, I wouldn't have thought this train of affliction was full of so many good things. But look at these boxcars, they're chocked full of good things for me. Not in the affliction itself, but in what God intends to do in the affliction. Because he's all about making you into the image of Christ. He's all about connecting you more and more closely with Christ so that you trust him and you worship him. And you find him in new ways. You gain a comfort from him that you had never known before. And he's all about you manifesting Christ to others in the midst, especially in the midst of affliction. That's where the light really shines of Jesus. That, that you can be sustained and people can't imagine why you can be sustained that way. But that's what affliction does. It's full of riches for the believer. Full of drawing you in even closer to God. But sin tempts you to look only at this world, to look at your outward tangible circumstances, not to the invisible, to the eyes, possibilities of God in the midst of your affliction. That's the delusion, the the deception of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. And really the evil of sin. And of course, Satan and sin are so sympathetic, so caring. Oh, I know it's so hard that God would abandon us. That's just the way he is. I'm sorry. But I've got so many good things that you can turn to. So many things. They're right here. They're right here available to you. You don't have to try to work with this God any longer. And have him just turn you over to these terrible things again and again. I've got some really good things we can go with. And so, sin offers a temporary pleasure. But as we read in this very passage in verse 17, it ends in death. It's the deception of sin. That begins to harden our heart. So that for the people of Israel, Egyptian slavery looked better than the promised land. They said, let's elect a leader that will take us back to Egypt. And of course, we looking at them saying, are you out of your mind? There's, there's this land flowing with milk and honey and God has said he's be with you. And, and look at all these miracles he did to get you out of Egypt and to sustain you in the wilderness. And now you're on the edge. And God's proven himself, and you want to go back to slavery, then live as free people in the land of Israel. But we become the same kind of people in the midst of our pain and affliction, and 
the temptation, the hardening is to turn away from this God right on the edge of the good things he's going to bring into our lives. Not to believe his promise. So this is something of the production of a hard heart. It's produced by deception, by a lie. And that's what's so tragic about it. But then some of the properties of uh, a hard heart are mentioned in verse 12. This is really a parallel statement. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's really parallel with being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin or, or maybe the result of it. And leading you to fall away from the living God takes up that idea that you can see up in verse 9. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So it's literally an evil heart of unbelief. This borrows from a word that's only found in the first five books of the Bible. It's only found in Numbers 14, talking about when they turned away. And he calls them an evil congregation two times. So he's really borrowing specifically from that, saying this is an evil thing when we have a heart of unbelief and withdraw or fall away from him. So... It's not just a lack of faith or trust. This is the refusal to believe God that leads to turning away from God in a deliberate act of rejection. So you might tend to think, gosh, do I have this evil heart of unbelief? Uh, And perhaps you're struggling with it, but do realize the full nature of it. It's a heart of unbelief that leads you to turn away, to reject him. And... The, the play of words between unbelief and falling away uh, uh, underscore the fact that this is the same basic idea. Not to believe is to refuse him. Uh, and <clears throat> it's really describing a heart, a heart, of, a heart that has the quality of unbelief, right? That's characterized by uh, unbelief. And what's interesting when it talks about the living God, the word thee is not there in the Greek. Now, what does that mean? It it means that the attribute of God is emphasized. So it it literally reads, fall away from living God. Okay, so it emphasizes that characteristic of God. The living God indicates he's the true God. It indicates that he's the source of life now and forever. It also indicates he's the God of power. God of fruitfulness, the God of vitality, emphasizes the greatness of the God abandoned, falling away from living God, the all-powerful, fruit-giving, life-giving God. He's the God, as the living God, he, he demonstrates his power and he keeps his promise. So to refuse him is to deny the sufficiency of his power. It's to deny the certainty of his promise. It's to act as though he's not living at all. He's really a dead God. And of course, to be without the living God is to suffer the ultimate loss. If you don't know the living God, if you are not in relationship to the living God, And it has the idea then, if you turn from the living God, you're turning 
to some form of idolatry. That's the only other choice is the dead gods out there, the non-gods out there. Because there's only one living God, one God of power, one God of life, one God of fruitfulness, one God of transformation. It's the living God. Even these people who are being tempted to go back into Judaism, to abandon Christianity, to just slide back into Judaism without Christ, he says, you are abandoning the living God. And this will just be another form of idolatry. For no one who rejects the Son, for, for, for anyone who rejects the Son, it is total loss. So to have an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, this, this hard heart, means that we refuse to believe that he is the source of life and blessing. That's the temptation in pain and suffering. The temptation in persecution. Is he the God of all goodness? Is he the God who's the source of life and blessing? And one of the tendons, one of the features of a hardened heart is shown in this word testing up in uh, verse 9. Your fathers put me to the test. It's the day of testing, verse 8. So faith will trust in God despite whatever our circumstances, in spite of appearances, but the testing heart is constantly checking God out. It, it has a doubt that demands proof of God. It demands that God keeps proving to me that you are a good God by doing good things for me. It's a way to bargain with God. Keep showing yourself. Keep coming through as I expect you to. And I'll keep following you. That's to put God to the test. Especially in the light of Christ where God has demonstrated, I am all in for your good and the good of this world because I have given my son. That defines who I am. That defines how good I am. And then to put him to the test in the face of that. So in the end, sin will make you resistant to the promises and the goodness of God or the promises and goodness of God will make you resistant to sin. That's the two pathways. Either I become resistant to sin because I'm enriching myself with the promises of God and the goodness of God or I'm becoming resistant to those promises and that goodness of God because of sin. So what are ways that we can prevent this hardening of the heart. It's produced by being deceived by sin. Its features are unbelief and turning away from God and testing God. What are some ways that we can prevent a hard heart? And the heart of this really is verse 14. Hold our original confidence 
firm to the end. Hold the, the reality, the substance of our faith firm to the end. Or as Ryan talked about verse 6 last week, hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope verse, uh, in verse 6. First of all, I would submit this to actively adore and delight in Jesus. Actively adore and delight in Jesus. When in Nehemiah, God is rehearsing uh, the fall of Israel in the wilderness. He says they refused to obey and they weren't mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. Okay. Nehemiah 9.17. Same thing in Psalm 106. Still reflecting the abandonment of the people of God in the wilderness. They forgot God, their Savior. This is Psalm 106, verse 21. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So when we forget the great works of God, when they're not turned up and kept alive and wonderful in our hearts, then we forget Him and our hearts are hardened And we abandon him in times of difficulty. So actively adore and delight in Christ. The the gospel itself is called, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the whole message of the Bible, centered in the gospel itself, is about that one thing, the beauty of Jesus Christ. You can put that mark over the Bible and say, it's about the beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole thing. And as Paul says in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches that you can't find the end of. They just go on and on. Train loads and train loads and ship loads and warehouses of riches. That's what's there in the gospel. And then when you couple those statements with Jesus, after his resurrection, walking with the two men to Emmaus and teaching them from every part of the Old Testament the things concerning himself, you realize it's not just confined to the New Testament, but it was rooted and the shadows and the beginnings of it and everything in the Old Testament somehow speaks to this so that the whole of Scripture. And just speaking from the Old Testament, they said later, our hearts were burning within us as he was teaching us about the things of Messiah, the things of Christ. And I would say for us, go for the burn every day, right? Seek him, ask him to reveal himself in this way. It's interesting that this quote from Psalm 95, it's, it's so abrupt. It's really weird when you read it in Psalm 95 because Psalm 95 starts like this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It's praise, praise, praise. And he gets to this verse 7. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving because he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, don't harden your heart. <laughs> Who was talking about hardening the heart? I was all praising you and, you know, and then suddenly the warning. But you see, in the midst of praise, beware of abandoning this praise. Always give yourself to this praise. 
always have a heart, seek to have a heart that's rich in gratitude, rich in adoration, rich with the thrill of who Christ is and what he's done. I would suggest, uh, you know, there's the acronym ACTS for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I like the, you know, you can do it cats or acts or tax or whatever. I like tax, C-A-C-A-T-A-C-S. For me, bumping up thanksgiving and adoration up front makes all the difference in my prayer life. Every bit of the difference. I, I, and it's selfish. It's probably I don't love people. But I, it's hard for me to pile into supplication right off the bat. And to stay there, I, I can't do it. I don't care that much about you, okay? No. <laughs> I have to be sustained by adoration and, and, and thanksgiving. That, and even in the midst of supplication, to constantly be adoring him and admiring him as I pray for people in the light of his greatness, you see. That just gives me the excitement about prayer. So I would urge you. Do you spend five minutes in adoration every day? I mean, just conscious praising, even to the point that your heart is even stirred with admiration for Jesus. How about five minutes? Five minutes. Maybe stretching it out to seven or eight or ten or twelve of of kind of being lost in the beauty of Christ. And, of course, that has to be sustained in the word. I, I, I can't just make up the idea of Christ. I, I have to, you know, read and, and find him and discover what it says and then use that to praise. And, but it's stirring up our hearts. It's, it's like what we just sang. It's this, what amazing hymn this is. I, I, I'm just going to push you into this all the more. This this hymn, Hast Thou Not Heard, Seen Him or Known Him, on page 5. You know, he says, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? What can keep you from being deluded into a false idolatry and the dead idols? What can keep you from this? What is it? Not a sense of right or duty, not just oh, it's the wrong thing to do. It's the sight of peerless worth. It's the sight of Jesus' beauty that holds your heart. It's right there in that hymn. It's so captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown them now, unrivaled king. No accident that our brother Jacob picked that hymn, right? So, First thing is actively adore and delight in Christ. Secondly, live on the promises of Scripture. Or if you want to have a different analogy, live inside the promises of Scripture. This, again, is what's constantly talked about when... And Scripture is always referring back to that time when they abandoned God in the wilderness, when they turned away from the land. This is a pivotal giant event in the history of Egypt. It was never forgotten. Even as now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't forget it, right? But this is the kind of thing they'll say. Later in Deuteronomy, it says, in spite of this word, the promise, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you to seek out a place for you. You wouldn't believe him. Or Deuteronomy 9, 
you did not believe him or obey his voice. Or Psalm 78 verse 22. They did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Or the way another translation has it, they did not trust his ability to deliver them. And I, I love the way it's put in Psalm 106. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. So not to believe his promise is then to just spit on the land, despise it. Because your promise is not good. You won't give it to us. We got to go back to Egypt. And then it's interesting how God puts this in the very chapter, Numbers 14, where it takes place. He says, how long will these people despise me and not believe in me? And that, that really, that helps me a lot to think if I'm comfortable in not believing or comfortable, you know, in a false humility that, oh, I'm just so weak and God's forgotten me and that's okay because I'm such a bad person, you know. And you can kind of justify your moaning and groaning and your unbelief. No, Darwin, you're despising God when you do that. Because he is sheer goodness. He is sheer faithfulness. He has only favor upon you. And he, he got it through the death of his son. And you're despising his goodness. You're saying you aren't that good. You can't be that good. It's to despise his great goodness and all the promises of Scripture, of course, you've heard this many times. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, they're yes in Christ Jesus. Right? What about this promise and this promise and this promise and this promise? And this promise? Let, me, let me give you the answer. They're all yes. They're all good. They're all guaranteed. How are they guaranteed? In the very blood of Christ. If he gave his son that great promise, the culmination of all his promises, then all the promises are good. And I was, in my own devotions a few weeks ago, I was in uh, Genesis and I was reading about the ark. And an image has helped me a lot. I I hope it can help you. Thinking of yourself in the promises or maybe in Christ, because Christ is the focus of the promises. Either way you want to do it. But I thought about being in the ark versus in the water, right? And I thought, that helps me to think during the day, stay inside Christ. Stay inside his promises where there's favor, where there's transformation, where there's not judgment and loss and dominion of sin in the storm. Darwin, by God's grace, you are in the ark. You are in Christ. Stay in the Stay in Christ. That's basically what's being said here in verse 14. Continue to hold your confidence. Don't jump out of the ark, right? It helps me to see it in such a great contrast of of a sense of safety and well-being and favor and transformation and, and the work of God in the ark. Whatever affliction, you know, He's having an argument with his wife or the animals smell bad or, you know, all the things that could happen. It's not out here. It's not outside. And whatever afflictions you're having, it's in the context that you're in Christ. 
And he's utterly devoted to you. And the last one, there are others, but the last one, I just mentioned this because it's so important. And by the way, in terms of uh, being in the ark, this hymn of poor sinners that they sang, poor sinner dejected with fear, that's a, that's a great uh, one to underscore at this point. Um, no wrath on his brow does he wear, nor will he poor mourners condemn. He's able and willing to save. You're in the ark. You know, you're in the ark. Come just as you are with your woe. Fall down at the feet of the lamb. He will not, he cannot say go, but will surely take out your stain. A fountain is open for sin. You're in the ark, in the promises. You're on the edge of the land. Don't turn away from that beauty that is yours, from the new heavens and the new earth that are pledged to you. You're the heirs of the world, the, the ones who will inherit the earth. What's sin going to offer you? No matter how much you're persecuted or afflicted, you have the promises. And of course, the, the specific thing that's mentioned here is the be vitally involved in the life of the church. Every single one of you. And I'll, I'll, I'll be up front with you. Don't let Sunday morning at 10 o'clock be the only time that you're among the people of God. Okay? And I know I'm, I'm speaking very plainly to some of you. I'm not looking at the ones, okay? I'll, I'll do it with my eyes closed. But... <laughs> um, but I'm just, I'm just urging, if you're able, I know some of you can't, just can't get out anymore. That's fine. But you see what he says, exhort one another every day. And he just underscores, as long as it's called today. And there's this little play on words between the, the word of exhorting and this called, almost as to say, look, every day your calling is this, exhortation and encouragement. This defines your life. If you belong to these people, you're to encourage them. Be it hospitality, be it visiting someone, be it lunch or breakfast or dinner or coffee or small groups or one-on-ones. You're called to this encouragement. And it's critical. It's critical encouragement. Lest you fall away from the living God. That's the point. Don't take lightly the critical nature of hearing other people talk about their faith and their struggle and how they're seeking to believe in Jesus or something that God's done in their life that encourages you to hold on, that encourages you to believe because they're exhibiting the promises. And it's interesting that the spies, the, the the 10 bad spies did the opposite to Israel. They came out and said, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> Giants, wall cities, no way. No way, Jose. We're not doing it. And we urge you not to. I, I just want to hold you out that you need to be an encouragement, not a discouragement in the body. Okay? An encouragement, not a discouragement. And your absence, your lack of involvement, is a discouragement. So we're wanting to warn one another against a heart that refuses to trust. And as he begins here, the Holy Spirit says this to us. It says it now. 
it's, he's, he's saying it to you and to me today, today. Holy Spirit is saying to you and to me today, don't harden your heart. Let's pray. Lord, bless us, nourish us on Christ. Draw us after him, Lord. Plant us deeper and deeper in rich, joyful faith. We pray this for your glory and honor. Amen.